This is Urgent Matters. Since 2002, Urgent Matters has been the preeminent dissemination vehicle for best practices and cutting-edge innovation related to the delivery of emergency medical care. Broadcast out of George Washington University in Washington, D.C., I am Dr. Andrew Meltzer. Today, we're really excited to be talking about point-of-care ultrasound in the area of COVID-19. There's a lot of issues with performing diagnostics for ED patients in the area of corona, in the era of coronavirus and uh, dealing with PPE and patient transport and how we limit exposure to our radiology personnel. How do we do serial exams? So today we're gonna to have two experts in point of care ultrasound. My name is Mike Blivis. I'm an emergency physician. I work part-time clinically uh, outside of Atlanta. Uh, my faculty appointment is an affiliate uh, professor at the University of South Carolina School of Medicine. I uh, first started in point of care ultrasound in 1993, and uh, right now my focus is uh, primarily on uh, artificial intelligence with application to point of care ultrasound uh, and uh, policy around that as well as research. And I am the chief medical officer for Equinos. I'm Kat Ogle. I am an emergency physician and faculty member here at the George Washington University. I went to medical school here, residency, and did my ultrasound fellowship and have been on faculty since 2012. Um, I am a subject matter expert in point of care ultrasound, our ultrasound fellowship director, and my particular interests are medical education, women in leadership, and of course, ultrasound. Thank you so much for being with us, Dr. Blyvis and Dr. Ogle. When you have done point of care ultrasound for a patient with coronavirus or suspected coronavirus, what studies did you do and sort of why did you do them? So I think from, from an anecdotal perspective, when the coronavirus hit um, our shop, we considered as a group the potential risk of contaminating our entire machine versus the benefit of uh, identifying something that was still fairly nonspecific on ultrasound, and we'll talk about some of that in a little bit. And so we actually made a decision as a group to not actively use uh, point-of-care ultrasound on the regular basis for patients that were potential rule-outs for coronavirus. We instead directed our efforts on patients who had other potential diagnoses and so we were looking at patients who came in with chest pain and you know we were primarily looking at their echocardiogram as opposed to their lung ultrasound and what is currently published and these are limited studies because that most of them are retrospective the lung findings that you see in point of care ultrasound are widely variable and non-specific and so there are not only challenges with with potential contamination of your machines, particularly if you have cart-based machines, but also limited clinical information. We took a slightly different approach, uh, noting that uh, some of the early studies on chest x-ray accuracy showed that uh, sensitivity can be as low as 20% or in the 20 to 50% range, tended to scan uh, a lot of lungs in these patients. Uh, so for the COVID rule-out patients, I probably scanned about close to 100 now, about 35 of them were positive that we know of. Uh, there's definitely a cadre of patients that clearly had COVID-19 but had negative tests. And obviously that uh, bespeaks to the issue we have with uh, testing and its accuracy. But one of the uh, interesting cases that sticks out for me is a young gentleman 
otherwise healthy 20-year-old who was sent in from a fast food restaurant uh, with a fever. His chest x-ray was negative. He basically said he was uh, feeling fine. Uh, and I did a lung ultrasound, classic uh, findings that we're seeing uh, described kind of internationally, uh, preponderance of uh, uh, thick and pleura and subpleural consolidations with classic reverberation artifacts that um, our colleagues in Italy would like to term, I think, uh, comet tails separate them from beelines. And these were mostly found in the inferior kind of lateral and posterior aspects of the lungs. And then I took a look at his heart and uh, I was just shocked. Uh, he had an EF of uh, visually approximately 20 to 25%. Um, he had had no cardiac issues. So this was uh, actually my first case of uh, COVID-19 myocarditis. And for some reason, I ended up seeing three more. I did write two of those up. So for me, that was a uh, really eye-opening discovery. And I'll be honest, I had not read about COVID-19 myocarditis prior to writing up those cases. And then realized there was some uh, signal from China, some from elsewhere. We had seen reports um, out of Brazil and uh, elsewhere around the world about uh, pericardial effusions in these patients that were not otherwise explained. So that's one of the reasons I was scanning everybody's heart. The other is probably because I'm an ultrasound nerd and that's what you do. You have a probe in hand and you scan uh, everybody sometimes. One of the issues obviously is contamination. Um, so I ended up moving away from our cart system, just using a handheld device. And I would basically wipe down every inch of it uh, with a wipe before and after every exam because we ran out of um, plastic covers for them almost right away, unfortunately. Well, that's really fascinating. Yeah, I had a case of myocarditis also. And um, yeah, that was before we really knew exactly what we were dealing with. So uh, I think now it's been published in several case series. So really interesting finding. So my first question to you, Dr. Blybus, is how can we use this as sort of an adjunct to our normal physical and pulse ox and to sort of assess the severity of what's going on with the patient's lungs? And what is the role of serial exams that you see using point of care ultrasound um, for these patients? Well, as Dr. Ogle uh, mentioned, uh, there's still kind of a paucity of data. A lot of it's been retrospective. As an editor for two different journals, I'm actually seeing a lot of the uh, studies that are coming in. For one of them, probably have about 35 uh, different COVID-19 lung ultrasound studies on my docket. And without revealing any confidential information, there is now prospective data coming in uh, from some of the larger kind of conglomerate groups. And it's pretty clear that uh, you can distinguish uh, COVID-19 type pattern on lung ultrasound from uh, others. This makes sense because uh, some of the large CT studies uh, out of China where they had four or 5,000 patients, they were able to uh, confirm that. And with lung ultrasound, obviously we don't get the images that you get on CT, but you see in a way what CT does, which is this abnormal pleura that generates all sorts of artifacts and the distribution is somewhat specific. So for, uh, for those cases, it can be very helpful. And I think there is data emerging that, uh, or starting to emerge, I have several studies under me, uh, they're not still you know, published, that seem to indicate uh, there is a predictive component uh, so that you can predict uh, deterioration. I think uh, the jury will be out on that for some time. Uh, we'll need more data. But uh, in the 
certain cases, uh, especially when the test is maybe questionable or delayed uh, for confirming COVID-19, you may be able to use it for risk stratification, possibly also prediction of uh, outcome. And then when coupled with abnormal cardiac findings that are uh, unexpected, that can lead providers to change their management. Again, as Dr. Ogle pointed out, it's still early enough that we don't have uh, solid data to really back those uh, assertions up with yet, although it's in the process of being published. I think you touched on this, but just to go in a little more detail without getting too in the weeds, but I'm sure there's some ultrasound nerds listening. What are the characteristic lung findings that we're seeing in coronavirus patients on the lung ultrasound? And maybe this is just characteristic of viral pneumonia in general. Sure, they tend to include uh, several things uh, and actually exclude one. Uh, there's a tendency not to see pleural effusions, and depending on which uh, literature you read, in classic pneumonia, uh, pleural effusions are relatively common, perhaps being seen in approximately 40%, depending on who you read, and they may be small, obviously. Uh, I've seen only one pleural effusion with a COVID-19 pneumonia patient, so definitely a, a small percentage. The other uh, common links you see from studies and reports around the world is uh, the inflamed thickened pleura, and this is corroborated by CT studies where they can actually measure the thickness of the pleura. It's very irregular. It has a very classic appearance on lung ultrasound. You'll have subpleural consolidations, which are uh, little almost anechoic or darker areas a lot of times. They will lead to artifacts that effectively look like beelines, uh, and the abnormal pleura will generate those same artifacts that look like beelines, but some of the, the true um, lung ultrasound research masters out of Europe, I think, try to differentiate between standard beelines from a normal thin pleura, which is more consistent with like pulmonary edema, to and uh, these abnormal comet tail artifacts. I'm not sure that uh, view is shared broadly, but they're kind of the exceptions uh, because of just how much research they've done, how excellent they are at lung ultrasound. And the other interesting thing is you can have a patch of abnormal pleura, let's say thickened, irregular with subpleural consolidations uh, next to completely normal pleura. Uh, and uh, lastly, it's the distribution, especially earlier on, we're uh, tending to see uh, findings that are bilateral uh, typically inferior lung fields, lateral and posterior. So you tend not to find them, uh, you know, upper anterior lung fields right away. And a lot of this is also consistent with the CT studies we've seen emerge out of uh, China and Europe that have fairly large data sets. And uh, I may be missing a couple of things. I'm sure uh, Dr. Ogle could probably uh, fill in. I'm sure I've, I've missed something. Yeah, thanks for that summary, Dr. Blavis. I, I, the only thing that I would add is that it seems like a little bit of a different technique thing is normally when we do lung ultrasound, we're really just doing anterior and lateral. And I think the studies that came out of China really showed us that we needed to be doing posterior lung ultrasound on these patients, which is not typical. Um, I think the other thing that's really interesting, particularly based on that ER physician in Spain who was doing his self-sano through his progress of um, COVID, is you can have extremely abnormal lung ultrasound and still be completely hemodynamically and stable in your home. 
with home monitoring. And I think that that is probably something that we need to be looking at uh, combining our lung ultrasound with pulse ox, particularly ambulatory pulse ox and ambulatory heart rate to determine that these patients are safe to go home. And to the thought of expanding this diagnostic to outside of the hospital, the uh, handheld systems are, are much easier to deploy in a tent or in a mobile site. And you know, the question is, do we need to start thinking about training primary care physicians, particularly with all of these handheld units that are available to be doing this in their offices, again, to risk stratify who needs to go into the ED or the hospital and who does not. It's interesting you mentioned posterior lung exams because I have a question that I have on my list here about how do we manage these patients when we're proning them, since that seems to be one of the treatments in the ICUs. And so this would be one of the things that we can actually do uh, for these prone patients. And I think I was trying to lead you on to say that, you know, ultrasound is going to be particularly hard in the ICU because of the proning, but maybe actually it's, it's more feasible if this is the view that we actually need. I think the, the posterior lung fields are the ones that seem to be predominantly affected in, again, the case series that we're currently seeing. And, you know, again, because it's a bilateral examination, you'll be able to easily look at both sides when that patient is prone. And to your question earlier about monitoring the progress of disease, there have been some good studies on the use of ultrasound in tracking the progress of congestive heart failure and determining when patients can actually come off of positive pressure ventilation, when you can downgrade them to a lower level of care. And I think similarly for lung ultrasound, again, we don't have widespread validated data on this yet, but I anticipate coming out of the ICU that we will start to see that as they are sonoing these patients sequentially from day to day, they'll see an improvement of the lung ultrasound. Great. And we would love to post some images and videos on the website so people can really see those B-lines and really see how the uh, progression of the disease leads um, sort of along the continuum to sort of pulmonary consolidation and air bronchograms. And hopefully we can show some of that too, because it is hard to visualize it without seeing those pictures. So last night in the ER, and this is a true story because I had a shift last night, I had a patient who came in short of breath he was a dialysis patient. He had missed several episodes of dialysis, um, breathing fast, and it sort of seemed like your normal case of a little bit of fluid overload. Um, do a chest x-ray, he had a big heart, he had a little bit of a pleural effusion, and then he comes back coronavirus positive. It's a little bit confusing to figure out exactly what's going on with this patient. I actually was surprised that he was positive. He told me the reason he missed dialysis all week was because he didn't want to go out, he was staying home. And uh, it turns out he was positive. So um, any thoughts about how I can use ultrasound to sort of tease that out, a case like that? So I think Mike had alluded to this, but the, the difference they're finding between lung ultrasound in a person who is simply volume overloaded compared to lung ultrasound in a person who has the coronavirus with pulmonary manifestations is a couple of things. Typically, if someone is volume depleted, or sorry, volume overloaded, you're going to see a nice, crisp, clean pleural line, right? And so it will be hyperechoic. It will be right up against the wall of the thorax, and it'll be sliding side to side. The other thing is that typically your B-line predominance or your comet tail predominance starts in the bases, 
and then moves up to the top of the lungs. So if you started at the bottom and you moved up the top of the lung fields in each of your planes that you assess, you would see this nice sort of, it, it, it seems to be more confluent, if you will. And the thing with the coronavirus findings on lung ultrasound is that the pleural line itself is typically thick, it's irregular or shaggy, and so that it doesn't have that nice crisp line. The next thing you'll see is that these, these areas of beelines or comet tails are very patchy. And it, it, to, and it and correct me if, if I'm wrong, Dr. Blyvis, but I feel like a lot of times coronavirus looks more like lung ultrasound that we see in people that have ARDS because you have patches of normal lung and you have patches of abnormal lung, which is completely different than your volume overload status. The secondary thing that I would say in your patient, um, Dr. Meltzer, is that if you had looked at his IVC, and you'd seen that his IVC was markedly dilated, that would again suggest that this is more of a volume overload process as opposed to a purely coronavirus manifestation. Yeah, that's uh, perfectly summed up. And there's nothing for me to add other than, uh, actually I've had this uh, very clinical experience uh, myself. I have an unusual patient population, uh, extremely high acuity really from poor compliance. But basically that means that I have a lot of cases that were um, COPD patients, uh, also with congestive heart failure or just congestive heart failure. And I have several where I had patients that were corona uh, positive, uh, where they were COVID-19 positive, and were congestive heart failure patients. And in order to determine which, uh, it was exactly as Dr. Ogle described, I could see in several a nice normal thin pleura, especially at the basis uh, next to uh, affected pleura from COVID-19. And that nice normal thin pleura didn't have any beelines of significance dropping down from it, suggesting that the lungs were not wet uh, from the volume overload from uh, extracellular water because of um, you know, congestive heart failure or pulmonary edema. And I also have several that clearly showed uh, these uh, re reverberation artifacts dropping down from pleura, where on part of the screen, the pleura was nice and thin. Part of it was quite abnormal and thickened. That meant that uh, not only did the patient have COVID-19 uh, pneumonia uh, type findings, but next to it, normal pleura that actually reflected volume overload, exactly as uh, Dr. Ogle uh, depicted. It was remarkable to uh, be able to have that tool to use clinically to make that distinction. Otherwise, it was very much up in the air. Is this patient someone that uh, needs to be admitted because they're short of breath and a little hypoxic? And several of those turned out to do very well after some diuresis and could go home because the COVID-19 burden was actually relatively small compared to the pulmonary edema burden. Thank you. Just to pivot back to the cardiac echo in coronavirus patients, what are some of the things we should be looking for? You mentioned a little bit about myocarditis. Are there other things? Are there pericardial effusions? Are there features consistent with the hypercoagulable state that we should be looking for when we do the cardiac ultrasound? And should we have an algorithm in our heads when we go up to these patients with known coronavirus of ruling these things out or you know, actively looking for these, these things? When I have a patient, it's always helpful for me to really be thinking, what am I looking for to really focus my exams and focus my diagnostic tests? This is the sort of situation like approaching the undifferentiated dyspneic patient, again, who may have multiple comorbidities coming into your ED with COPD and CHF 
and maybe COVID. So the first step, I think, in this situation, particularly based on Dr. Blavis's experience with scanning mo many of his patients, start with the lung, see what the lung looks like. If the lung is not fitting a pattern that you expect, next go to the heart. And you know, our typical questions on, on echo are, is there normal contractility? So if there's abnormal contractility, if the patient doesn't have any prior history of cardiac disease that, that would manifest itself in poor contractility, then you have to ask yourself, is this a myocarditis picture? Uh, does the patient have a pericardial effusion? There are some cases of coronavirus that are manifesting in pericardial effusion. It's not typically an early manifestation. It's actually a later manifestation, but there are some cases where they're having pericardial effusions. So then you have to ask yourself, is the pericardial effusion clinically significant? Is it actually causing RV um, collapse? Is it causing any signs of tamponade? Is the patient hypotensive? Is the patient tachycardic? But I think the most interesting part of the cardiac ultrasound with coronavirus is taking a look at the RV function because we're seeing a lot of thromboembolic disease in these patients. And while right ventricular dilation in and of itself is not specific for having a pulmonary embolism, if your patient has a pulmonary embolism and right ventricular dilation, that's a harbinger of poor mortality and morbidity. It's interesting. Uh you know, the coronavirus patient evaluation with ultrasound is a bit of a moving target as we uh, discover uh, new manifestations. Uh, I think for now, we're probably towards the tail end of discovering new surprises. Uh, but the thromboembolic issue has, was definitely a little bit delayed in coming to uh, realization. Uh, obviously, uh, depending on how much uh, a provider wants to expand their ultrasound examination, uh, some people have suggested looking at uh, the lower extremity veins. You can do a focused lower extremity DVT examination. You can do a TAPSI where you're looking at the movement of the annulus of the tricuspid valve towards the apex. There are some established criteria for uh, what may be found uh, in uh, cases of pulmonary embolism. Also, how uh, the movement of the free wall of the right ventricle on, let's say, an apical four chamber view appears is part of it hyperdynamic. You're really looking at the uh, McConnell sign and things like that. Uh, that again gets a little bit more complicated, but there's lots of free educational video content out on the web for people that want to include that. Uh, and there's uh, some literature uh, support for it, as well as some uh, literature questioning of uh, the accuracy, the sensitivity and specificity of these signs. So for those people that want to add a little bit more to their diagnostic capability, they could always uh, push into those regions, but everything else was really well uh, summed up by Dr. Ogle. Thank you guys so much. This has been really informative. As we wind down, just wanted to ask you about sort of the future of using ultrasound technology in the new coronavirus era. Mike, obviously your chief medical officer of Echinos, um, are there new technological advances that you see from industry coming out there and things that you want our listeners to know about? I think probably the main things people are going to push for in the future is automation. Uh, one thing that the, the corona epidemic has made clear is that ultrasound is a great tool. It's probably best handled in a very small package because of the difficulty of decontaminating large carts or having to leave them in one area and bring patients to them. So uh, 
the concept that uh, handhelds are going to start taking a larger uh, role in point of care ultrasound, I think, is quite realistic and justified by all that we've seen happen. So we're going to see a push to uh, equivalent image quality between the carts and uh, the handhelds because there'll be pressure from basically the customers. I want the same quality images. Then to really get beyond, far beyond, like Dr. Ogle, myself, we really need to get the technology into the hands of the rank and file providers that maybe did not have ultrasound training, do not have the time to uh, add that training, and maybe even further down to uh, nurses, paramedics, uh, and then maybe the patients themselves eventually. And for that, you need basically the help of artificial intelligence. We're seeing more and more companies come on with uh, various applications. Uh, we're working on a slew of them. And the goal is to empower the provider that doesn't have much or any ultrasound skill uh, to be able to guide his or her scanning uh, technique uh, and then analyze the images that they obtained uh, and make some kind of differential from it uh, or eventually maybe even a diagnosis. Thank you guys so much. That's all the time we have today. We'll be putting supplementary material up on the Urgent Matters website. Uh, in addition to links and contacts for all of our listeners for further questions. Thank you both, Dr. Ogle. Thank you so much, Mike, and uh, appreciate you guys being here. And hopefully we can have you back again and maybe even do a webinar with some images in the future. That would be great. Thank you so much. Thanks, Dr. Meltzer. Urgent Matters was founded by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation in 2002. Since then, it has served as a dissemination vehicle for the best practices in emergency care through our webinars, podcasts, newsletters, issue briefs, innovation awards, and national meetings. Currently sponsored by the Ronald Reagan Institute of Emergency Medicine at George Washington University in Washington, D.C., Urgent Matters supports innovative care strategies and is a resource for the ED community to discover field-tested new initiatives that can be tailored to their local practice or organization. Our editorial board consists of a holistic group of stakeholders, including ASEP, West Health, EDPMA, and AACCP. <laughs> I was going. Yeah, yeah. Which, <laughs> it's it's not French. I was Frenchifying it. I'm sorry. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, that would be very cool. But it, uh, it's Greek root. <laughs>